Hello, health enthusiasts, fitness buffs, and truth seekers. In today's episode of Vibrant Potential, I interview Dr. Brandon Brock. I'm happy to call Dr. Brock both a friend and a colleague. Today, he spills the beans about how to optimize your brain to get the most out of life. For those of you who don't know Dr. Brock's work, he's got quite a bio. He's a diplomate of the American Chiropractic Neurology Board and a fellow of the American College of Functional Neurology, American Board of Vestibular Rehabilitation, American Board of Electrodiagnostic Specialties, and the International College of Chiropractors. Wow. Dr. Brock is also a family nurse practitioner. He currently works in family medicine and general functional neurology, enjoying rehabilitation, internal medicine, hormone replacement, wellness, and coaching people back to optimum function. Dr. Brock and I share a passion for learning to bring the best contribution to you. He's currently a doctoral student at Duke University for nursing practice and plans to continue with an extension of a dual doctorate that involves a PhD at the University of Arizona. So in other words, that will be three doctorate degrees that Dr. Brock will have. So we need to call him Dr. 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 Brock. (laughs) Dr. Brock is a staff clinician at Carrick Brain Centers in Dallas, Texas, and has previously served as adjunct faculty at Texas Women's University and serves as a clinical preceptor for Georgetown University, University of Texas Arlington, and TWU. He serves as a clinical instructor for Apex Energetics and teaches laboratory analysis, thyroid pathologies, endocrinology, immunology, and neurochemistry. Dr. Brox makes learning fun and easy and has received an award for Neurology Educator of the Year four times from the American Chiropractic Association Council of Neurology and was also awarded the prestigious title of Most Outstanding Educator at the first and second annual conference for functional neurology and is now the vice president of that organization. Vibrant Potential is all about looking at your health holistically. Dr. Brock fits the bill as purpose, motivation, positivity, knowledge, organization, charity, personal health, and experience are some of the things that he loves to see develop in his students and his clients. And he feels that these are imperative for professional success and personal happiness. So, without further ado, here's Brandon Brock. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Welcome, everyone. Today, I am here with Dr. Brandon Brock. I'm really excited for this. Dr. Brandon Brock is definitely a leader in chiropractic and in healthcare, and just super excited to have you on the call with us today, Dr. Brock. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's good to be here. Just doing everything I can to give people solutions for healthcare problems, whether it be doctors or patients. That is awesome. Thank you. Well, we are aligned on that one. So the way I thought I would start off is I just wanted to introduce for the people that don't know, uh, you have a pretty unique sort of point of view or perspective in the healthcare field because you actually have a couple of different degrees. You're a chiropractor, you're a doctor of chiropractic, you're also a nurse practitioner, and you're, you're a functional neurologist, so you, uh, you do a lot with neurology as well. With that in mind, I'm just curious about how did you decide to like go down that route and sort of like what's the, is there any backstory to that? Yeah, that's a really long story. Uh, basically, I was involved, you know, in um, kind of the political sort of the, uh, I was one of the directors of scientific affairs for the Texas Chiropractic Association. 
and we were getting sunsetted. And most people probably don't know what sunsetted means, but basically our board was getting reviewed by the federal, you know, agencies. They, they basically come in and basically what the feds do is they come in and they evaluate every state agency to make sure that they're, you know, kind of keeping everything's up, you know, everything up to par. So I was there and I watched the way the chiropractic profession was really beaten up, uh, especially by the medical profession. And it, it kind of, it didn't just sadden me. It actually kind of motivated me to decide that I wanted to go and get more education so that I could decide where I could do, you know, a medical component. And then I could bridge the gap between the chiropractic world and the medical world because some of the misinterpretation really wasn't misinterpretation. It was just malicious. And I wanted to be an advocate, a person in the middle that could say, hey, look, this is what chiropractors are doing. And I can say this. And this is how it relates to the medical world. And I can say that because I have a degree in that section of it too. So it just made sense for me to pursue both routes. And I did that and it worked out really, really good because now I can kind of talk in a room full of both, both groups and bring some reason. Uh, and I can't be looked at at one or the other because I'm both. And it's been very interesting, but it's given perspective to a lot of conversations that have actually been very important. I think that's great. And most people, unless they're sort of dogmatically on, on one end or the other, certainly most patients, I think, would agree that they would love to see that bridge gapped in a better way. So mm-hmm. that's great that you're right in the middle of that. Yeah, it's great. It's stressful. It's good. It's, it's just one of those things that it's had, to, it's had to happen. It's been very valuable for our profession, especially for our clinic in a lot of ways. You know, but it's like I said, it, it comes with a price because if you bring anything realistic to the table, sometimes not many people like it, especially when they have an agenda. So when somebody has an agenda and you start bringing uh, an undeniable set of realistic values to it, they just don't like you. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Well, we're not going to we're not going to go into that stuff too much today, but um, I just I really respect you for that. And, and I wanted people to know that that's kind of the paradigm that you're coming from. So really quickly, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my listeners already know that I'm a functional neurologist as well. And so a lot of people that are listening know, know a bit about functional neurology, but I was wondering if from your perspective, from your paradigm, can you give me like a, whatever it is, a one minute or five minute explanation of what is functional or chiropractic neurology and and what's kind of the point or the purpose of it in your mind? Yeah, well, functional neurology is sort of one of those things that's kind of kept regular neurology from being doomed. For some reason, regular neurology has sort of gone into this world of the nervous system is sort of hardwired and everything is what it is and nothing changes and these pathways are set in stone and therefore don't vacillate, change, oscillate, or become different. And really, with an allopathic or medical neurologist, they'll look at things and say, okay, you got seizures. The only way we can stop this is by taking a pharmaceutical. So here it is. Or you've got brain damage, and the brain damage is what it is. There's no way to change it or improve it because the brain is static. Well, the functional neurologist really has come along over the years and just sort of decided to look at things and say, you know what? The brain really isn't as static as we thought it was. It's very much dynamic, and it responds to environmental input. So if you challenge it, it can plastically get more efficient, which means this. The connections between one area can get greater to another area, or the efficiency of one brain cell can become improved. And so what the functional neurologist has done is taken all that art of being able to name the area that's messed up or determine the severity of an injury and then apply an outside stimulus to get pathways to fire better or to re-collateralize or to get brain cells to fire that didn't fire before and make your brain do its absolute best given its genetic and comorbid conditions. You know, like if you have diabetes, it may be different. If you have severe brain injury or if you've had a major stroke, there may be limitations. If you have hormonal insufficiency, then there may be some limitations. So really the functional neurologist is a guy that's cross-training in every field to do everything they can to make the brain be optimized. And I think that's drastically different than any other form of neurology. We are literally increasing function, kind of one neuron at a time. 
Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. And, and for me, I mean, the name of the podcast is Vibrant Potential and, and I've been a practicing chiropractor for over 10 years and my kind of passion is about increasing function for people. So that's just been like one of my driving forces. So obviously, I mean, from my paradigm, the brain controls and coordinates everything in the body. So if you can improve the function or just improve the firing or whatever, the the communication from one part of the brain to another or the brain down to the body, to me, that's going to improve your adaptability to life, your your flexibility to different situations. Is there anything that, that you'd like to add to that thought process about like, why do people, why should people care about, about the brain? Well, people should care about the brain because what we're really studying now is we, we started out studying the brain as a singular organism, you know, it's our singular organ and saying, okay, the brain does X, Y, and Z. And then we looked at the brain and said, now that we understand that it exists, there's specific areas that do specific things. So let's divide it up into a thousand different pieces and just see what they do. Well, very, very quickly, we decided that piece A doesn't work well unless pieces B, C, D, and E are working well. So now we've had to look at it in not this sort of, you know, loculated fashion, but we've had to sort of look at it as different regions that all oscillate together in harmony. And we found out that when that happens, whether it be through a releasing hormone or through a neurological pathway, all your other organ systems will function better if your brain is doing a better job. So we realize that there is a brain to such and such component. So let's say brain to gut or brain to thyroid or brain to adrenal component. And then what we also realized is, is that the guts themselves can do things like become leaky or become sensitized or the dendritic cells can be unnaturally sensitized, which can create inflammation and that inflammation can go back to the brain and damage it. So we've now started studying the brain as a whole organ that oscillates together in harmony and symmetry, and then it controls every organ system, and those organ systems now have input back onto the brain. So the brain is now being learned in loops, a brain-gut, gut-brain, or brain-thyroid, thyroid-brain loop. And we have about 150 of these now that we're studying, and if we can get all these loops working in the right fashion... It's not just the brain that improves, but now the entire person improves and all their organ systems improve. So the brain is extended out into every organ system, and that's why the functional neurologist is having to really become cross-trained. Excellent. You mentioned brain-gut. I want to just highlight that a little bit more because that's you know become a topic in the popular culture, sort of, the brain-gut connection. What does that mean when someone hears brain-gut connection? I think you touched on it, but uh, can you go a little bit deeper? Sure. I mean, your brain is one of the things that creates output of your vagal portion of your autonomics, which is basically your parasympathetic nervous system. So every time you chew, it creates vagal activation, which creates salivation, which breaks down your food. And then your brain activates the production of stomach acid, which further breaks down your food. And then your brain makes digestive enzymes, which further breaks down your food. And then your brain shunts blood to the intestines, which keeps your intestinal lining intact. And then your brain activates the spleen and the rest of the immune system to give you the adequate immune function to protect itself if you eat something that you shouldn't. So the entire mechanical cascade of neurological function is geared towards giving you the ability to eat food, break it down into micromolecules and absorb it so that there's not an abnormal immunological response. And then your brain also gives the enteric nervous system, which wraps around the gut, the ability to work appropriately or to gauge it so that you have good flow of material through your intestines so that it doesn't stay there very long and create infection or overpopulation of any type of bacteria or organism and it gets it out the other end before anything has time to set up and grow. So the brain completely oversees your gut. Even though your gut has the ability to do a lot of stuff on its own, it has the ability to bring digestive enzymes, stomach acid, the breakdown of food, the absorption of food, bringing blood to the barrier systems to keep them intact, and then bring food all the way through so that the entire process happens in a way to where you don't get sick. When the brain is healthier, all that works, at least a lot better. Okay, really awesome. So one thing I like to tell people in the clinic, just to make it like really easy, is uh, you mentioned the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system. So just for the listeners, just to like put it into like a, some sort of paradigm, 
there's a portion of the brain or the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which is a lot of what we do automatically. So it controls blood pressure and it controls pupil dilation and like a lot of things that are important for function that we don't think about, but we use it essentially every instant of every day in some way. And the two sides of the autonomic nervous system are the sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of nicknamed the fight or flight nervous system. So that's more important for focus and performance. And then the parasympathetic nervous system is the other kind of end of it, which is that rest and digest mode, which is what you were talking about connected with the gut. So that's kind of what that was about. So let's see here, the brain gut connection. So you were talking about gut motility and stuff going through there and then the importance of the health of the gut and so that we can absorb foods and use those those micronutrients macronutrients a lot of people have heard of leaky gut now there's also so the gut is a barrier between kind of the outside of our of our body and the and our bloodstream so we have to absorb food hopefully in a in an appropriate way to get those foods in there without developing food sensitivities and autoimmunities and all these different things. And then in the brain, we have a similar barrier called the blood-brain barrier that, that keeps parts of the brain sort of separate or distinct from the rest of our circulatory system and the rest of you know the chemicals that are happening in the rest of our body. So do you have any, like when we're talking about brain-gut, do you find that uh, the a leaky gut can also be, is, is that often, does that go along with the leaky blood-brain barrier? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the actual, you know, molecular structure of the gut barrier, it's made out of zonulins and occludins and, and actinomycins. It's all these different kinds of, you know, structures that keep these little gap junctions and, and the railing together. But what we're finding is the railing looks very similar in our blood-brain barrier, and it looks very similar in our respiratory barrier, and it looks very similar in our olfactory barrier systems. So when we have an inflammatory process or a process that's breaking down a barrier system in one area, as that inflammation progresses and gets more chronic, we have a tendency to see other areas break down. So if you have gut problems and it breaks down the gut barrier, there's the potential that later on down the road at some point, it'll break down blood-brain barrier. Now, if you've had a head injury, you may break down the blood-brain barrier first, and then as a result of a bad brain, you will eventually break down the gut barrier. So one may come before the other depending on the etiology of the trauma or the pathology that the patient is having. Right. Right on. Just like you said, it's brain-gut and gut-brain. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I mean, obviously, we're talking a lot about the gut and the brain, and so I'm curious what, you know, how you deal with this in your clinical practice. Do you look at food sensitivities for patients? Yeah, we look at food sensitivities quite a bit, and it's, it's just because, you know, there's, there's, really, it's really, there's really not a lot we can do with people if we don't eliminate those things. There's always an inflammatory mechanism going on, and if there's always an inflammatory mechanism going on, then what happens is you do all you can to get rid of those symptoms and they just stick around because you still have the trigger inside of there. So we found that whenever you have that trigger in there and if you don't get rid of it, it tends to create problems. So we try to, we try to identify them and we try to eliminate them and then we try to watch the inflammatory response. And, and let's say there's 15 triggers that a patient could have that's making their brain not so good or their guts not so good. Well, foods may be one. So we get rid of those. And, you know, that might be part of it or all of it. We also know that infection could be part of it. Uh, people can also have things like gastroparesis or they can have things like a blockage. But in the intestines and in intestinal health, especially if somebody has a leaky gut, food sensitivities are absolutely imperative because every time you eat these things, you get more inflammation and the inflammation carries on whatever disease process you have. Got it. Very good. So we went down a little gut-associated tangent there, but I, I just want to bring it back to functional neurology really quick. Since you have a lot of different tools in your toolbox, Dr. Brock, from your point of view again, what is chiropractic neurology or, or functional neurology, what is that best at? Like, are there certain times or conditions or health goals that you find that people are particularly going to want to seek out someone who is educated in functional neurology? 
Yeah, I mean, the patients that we get the most are really the ones that have already sort of, they've been everywhere. They've had every condition ruled out. They've had MRIs. They've had EEGs. And, and they haven't really ever, you know, really been able to have a, a, a disease entity named per se. It's not always like that, but sometimes it is. And whenever there's not just some sort of giant anatomical process present, it's usually a physiological process. Now, the functional neurologist is very good at saying, okay, look, everything's showing up pretty good in your brain, but we know that functionally it doesn't work well. So somebody's going to have to do a very good detailed examination and then find all the details and then come up with a strategy that's novel for that patient and then put it together in a way to where it's individualized for them and it can make their brain work better. That's markedly different than somebody that has a tumor and they need to have that thing taken out or they've just had a stroke and they need to go to the emergency room. So we get a lot of patients and, and more than 50% of pathology for the brain is this little functional thing where the brain is not now doing what it's supposed to and it needs to be tuned up, changed, or the function of it needs to be altered. And we do that as a functional neurologist. So we get a lot of cases, kind of going back to what you asked me, we get a lot of cases where that just can't be named. And there's a lot of doctors that if it doesn't fall in the realm of being able to be named and have a specific procedure, then they either say the patient's crazy or there's nothing they can do, so they end up seeking our help. And we've helped every, you know, everything from post-stroke to PTSD to mental illness to pain conditions and even gut issues that are brain-related. We have worked with all of those. I would say it works for a, a whole lot of things that a lot of people would not think that it works for. That's, that's kind of what we've made our living doing. Right on. So again, for the listener, am I uh, hearing you correctly that, that you would say functional neurology, even though it says neurology, it's not necessarily something that's like that most people would think of. You know, you might be able to like work with a traumatic brain injury or a migraine or a vertigo, which a lot of people would associate with a brain issue. But what about just like chronic pain or what about even something like gassiness or something, which is like, you know, sounds sort of trite or something, but like if somebody has bloating and, and gassiness that really affect their life, would that also be something that that they could seek out an answer for from a functional neurologist? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing that we're finding about our version of functional neurology, I guess, and it's kind of an, an evolving sort of profession. And what we're finding is, is that functional neurology is not necessarily chiropractors and it's not necessarily medical doctors. It's made out of a bunch of different professions that are coming together to improve function of the brain. So it really shouldn't be linked to anybody. But we know that some people are better at it than others. I mean, we have some people that have gut problems where we do the evaluation and we just simply say, your brain needs to improve so that your brain can control your gut better and your gut can heal. And then we have some people where we say, you know what, your primary gut issue is not neurological. The neurological component is secondary. But the primary thing is, is that you have an infection and that infection needs to be dealt with, maybe with nutrition, maybe with drugs, maybe with diet, whatever the case may be. So what we found is, is that functional neurology sometimes has the primary role. Sometimes it has a secondary supportive ancillary role, but it almost always has a role. You just got to kind of know where to put it. And then in some patients, they have to go get other forms of treatment before, you know, functional neurology is something that's really going to be beneficial for them. So the hardest part that we're finding out now is when do you use it? When do you start it? And is there anything else that needs to go along with it to highlight it and make it even that much better? So we're getting good at that. Hopefully, uh, I, you know, we'll, we'll get better at it in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Dr. Brock, you've been one of my instructors in my learning of functional neurology, been in your seminars, you know, multiple times. I, you know, I just, one of the things that I really respect about you and, and I try to model myself the same way is that you're not super dogmatically in one camp versus the other. And, and we've already kind of touched on this a couple of times, you know, to me, I think that a chiropractic adjustment could be beneficial for someone. Sometimes a drug might be beneficial. Sometimes a detoxification protocol might be, might be a great thing for someone. And so there's, I love that you're willing to look at the, you know, these different tools and just call them tools instead of like, this is the thing that always needs to happen with everyone. So 
from that point of view, can you tell me if there's any drugs that you find to be particularly dangerous that maybe like that people should know about, like really, really do your, your homework before you get on, say like a, I'm particularly interested in benzodiazepines. Like is a benzo, when is that appropriate? When isn't it? Mm. Well, I'll talk about benzo since you bring it up. I mean, in your benzodiazepine category, you have things like Xanax or Alprazolam and your Valiums and your Clonazepins and your Clonazepams and really all these things that take a nervous system that just is over-firing, either because the glutamate and GABA ratios are off or the patient's excitotoxic, or maybe they're just genetically wired to the point to where they have GAD65 antibodies so they don't convert well from glutamate to GABA, and they can't inhibit the amount of GABA they have. And just to clarify what that means is glutamate is excitatory, GABA is inhibitory. So when you have more excitatory than inhibitory, you're going to have a system that's more ramped up and slowed down. Now, now when we have that, we simply have to say, okay, look, something's got to happen. Either we have to increase the brain's capacity to inhibit something by activating those areas, or we have to give the substrate for GABA. And we know that GABA nutritionally really doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier well, so it's a terrible nutrient to use. And so the one thing left is serotonin, which does the job, and GABA with a carrier molecule does the job, which is phenobut. And then there's some other things that help out, like theanine, and there's a few other nutrients, but they're pretty weak. But then we have the benzo group, which does get through the central nervous system. But what it does is, is it takes the GABA receptors and makes them more sensitive. So it's a pretty interesting drug concept, and they can be life-saving at times because they can really reduce panic attacks and major anxiety, but there's only one problem people develop a significant amount of tolerance to them. So once they try to get off, they have a rebound issue that is greater than the original problem. And that's one of the biggest deals with medications. And I was going to, even before you brought that example up, I was going to say that all medications in the psychiatric realm are things that make me nervous because they genetically change who we are at our core. And that is they completely remodel the receptors that all of our neurotransmitters are using to make us who we are. But you may take a certain medication for a while, and now you're never genetically the same person you were before that. That is something that makes me nervous as a practitioner. So when you go through this and you say benzodiazepines are bad, it's hard to get off of them. You can't just quit. If you've been taking them for a while and you quit, you're a huge seizure risk. And once you have seizures, you can have more anxiety. And then once you have one seizure, they can become plastic, and you you can have many, many more so I am very much aware of the fact that benzos can be a big problem. And most doctors that use them correctly with their patients, they don't prescribe them for long periods of times and they use low doses. So even the medical world has really strict rules against some of these uh, medications. And most of them don't even follow their own rules. Wow. I mean, to me, this is an area that's extremely interesting. So you mentioned changing neurotransmitter receptivity and changing who you are genetically and, and some some statements like that. Can you elaborate just a little bit on frontal lobes and sort of the role they play in being being humanistic and and what you mean by who you are? Yeah, well the frontal lobes are interesting because there's, you know, so many different areas. If you go into the midline portion, like in the orbital frontal or the medial prefrontal wall the guys that are on the inside, they're very, very limbic. And what that means is they deal with emotions, raw emotions. And since they're in the frontal lobe, they deal with the ability to inhibit impulsiveness from that area. So people who have these orbital frontal lesions or these midline frontal lobe lesions become very impulsive. And sometimes they just do or say whatever it is that comes to their mind. And they, these are the people that don't have a filter especially when you have people like with right orbital frontal lobe lesions, they become impulsive and they do whatever they want. And, and you see this a lot in ADHD kids. And then when they grow older, they can become sociopaths or become criminals. You know, our prison systems are filled with people with frontal lobe lesions. You go a little bit further out and then you've got that big, nice, juicy lateral portion of your frontal lobes called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And it's what gives us really our executive function. It, it allows us to say, okay, I've got 15 things to do. And I, this is more important than that, so I have to do this first. And so it allows us to prioritize things. So it's really called the executive brain. 
So now in the frontal lobe, we have the area that controls the impulsiveness, which is the social part. And then we have the area that takes complex social things and organizes them so that we have an executive part. And then as we go a little bit more towards the back or the middle of our brain, we have the areas that integrate that give us movement of our body and another area that's just a little bit more anterior that gives us movement of our eyes. So when we start looking at frontal lobe function, it's expressed in humans through the ability to move your eyes a certain way and your limbs a certain way and to control your posture so that we can talk to a patient and say, wow, it doesn't look like their frontal lobes are doing too well. And then you can watch them walk and you can say, it looks like their frontal lobes are not as good as they should be. And then you can ask them questions and it, and you can say, wow, their frontal lobes are doing this, that, or the other. And then you can look at their eyes move, and their eye movements are part of the equation of what their frontal lobes do. And so your frontal lobes control your emotions, your frontal lobes control your movement, your frontal lobes control your intellect, and your frontal lobes integrate all your other sensory inputs, and it turns them into a motor function or an executional thought process. I don't know. I'm just saying that humans are really the only thing on earth that has a developed frontal lobe. And that's because we have to have such a high level of, of interaction with each other. And we have to be able to hold down complex jobs, our actions, our activities. Animals don't do that. So it's pretty fascinating to see what a human can do that no other species can do. And, and, and then what the frontal lobe has to do with it. And every other species that's higher functioning like monkeys and even dogs and horses we all have the same brains. We just have more frontal lobe. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's like, it's so fascinating to me. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. So obviously a functional neurologist does all kinds of cool things to modulate what's happening in the brain, try to make it more balanced. Would you say there, is there any advice like short of going to a functional neurologist is like, just for anybody listening, is there a one or two best strategies of something that someone can do to just improve frontal lobe capacity or the functioning of the frontal lobe? Sure. Yeah, I think there's some pretty easy rules. Rule number one is the frontal lobes shut down with excessive stress. There's these things called catecholamines. Other people know them as epinephrine and norepinephrine or stress hormones. Those guys really take the frontal lobe and they disconnect it from certain parts of the brain. And too many stress hormones for too long of a period of time or what we would call unhealthy stress. It makes certain parts of your brain deteriorate, mainly the front part of your brain and the center part of your brain called your hippocampus, which gives you memory. So if you start to get depressed, flat, you can't execute things and you're under stress and you're getting short-term memory loss, then your stress hormones are literally deteriorating your brain. So I would say this, reduce stress. And the next thing I would say is increase exercise. They've done some studies that show things like SSRIs or medications that help with depression. They help the frontal lobes connect, but then once you stop taking it, they lose that connectivity. But if people exercise on top of that, they get the connectivity, and then once they're done with the medication, they keep it. So exercise makes the frontal lobes all join together, connect together, and function in harmony better. So stay away from stress. And then make sure that you're doing physical activity. And then the next thing I would say is find a good diet that is not inflammatory because inflammation shuts down all your neurotransmitters and it makes your frontal lobe not function the way it should. So now when we're eating a bad diet or we have pro-inflammatory foods and you're under stress and you're not exercising, you're taking away any advantage that your frontal lobes have to do what they're supposed to do and that is make you human. So those would be the top three things. I mean, and then, of course, I would say find a good doctor that can help take care of you. Find somebody that understands nutrition. Make sure you get a physical examination that if there's any problem that your body's having, it can be identified, whether it be neurological or metabolic, because they all tie into each other and they all work together to either make you better or worse. And then after that, I would just say, you know, live a clean life. Uh, if you think that um, your spirituality or your morality is part of something that's important to you, you need to make that a part of your life because anything that goes against what you believe in will damage your frontal lobes. Fascinating. So you said a metabolic problem, you're differentiating uh, neurological from metabolic issues. Can you tell people what is a metabolic issue? Yeah. A metabolic issue would be like this. You have diabetes or you have anemia. And as a result, you're not getting 
the appropriate nutrients to your brain because you're diabetic or you're not getting oxygen to your brain because you're anemic. So now those metabolic problems are driving a secondary neurological problem. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier, and that is functional neurology may be a secondary issue. But if you have a major anemia, there's really nothing I can do to make your brain better unless I first get rid of what's causing the anemia. For instance, if you have a uterine fibroid eating up all your iron, that needs to be fixed. Or if you have no stomach acid and you're not absorbing B vitamins, you'll destroy your brain and central nervous system. So if those things are there, it's very, very, it's almost ridiculous to try to, to try to functionally fix a brain that is being beat up metabolically. We try to take away the metabolic issue and then treat the brain functionally and we see our results get 10 times better. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm wondering if we can hit on a couple of things, like as we're talking about, you know, metabolic issues and whether neurologic issues are secondary or primary or, or what have you, you had talked about GABA and glutamate and, and the brain quote unquote over firing, you know, or, or whatever. And so obviously or not, obviously what we're talking about is that neurons they have a, what's called an action potential, and the way a neuron works is that there's a chemical part of this and an electric part of this, but they, they fire or they, they, they send off an electrical signal to the next neuron that's sort of down line from that one. Can you talk about exceeding the metabolic rate and like, I mean, I don't want to make it boring, but can you talk about the resting membrane potential and TND and, and some of those things? Yeah, I mean, as a functional or is that too much? <laughs> no, no, I, I really don't think it's too much, and I think it's important. I think it's important for a lot of reasons. It's it's important for people who are listening that are not doctors, and it's important for doctors who do functional neurology. A neuron is like anything else. I mean, you can picture a neuron as a as a whole person that's maybe running a marathon, and let's pretend that that person didn't eat well, and they are they're not well hydrated, and they have terrible shoes on, and they haven't sort of you know prepared for the marathon you know, halfway through it, they're going to gas out and there's a good chance something, you know, terrible is going to happen to them. We'll take somebody that's had a head injury, for instance, and now they have neurological tissue that is just beat up. You know, it, it's, it can't utilize its fuel source as well. It, it doesn't have good internal organelles and they're breaking down. And so the neuron is really at a critical point to where in order for it to function, it has to scoot closer to threshold, meaning it can't fire very well. So it has to become closer to the ability to fire so that it can do its regular duties as a neuron. And when that happens, sometimes the line between resting and non-resting gets so blurred that it might just spontaneously fire. So we see that with seizure activity or even hallucinations or, you know, any part of the brain that spontaneously fires, it can create headaches. It can create a whole load of things. So as a functional neurologist, you know, you're trying to activate systems and, and circuitry to make it healthier. But if you take a population of damaged neurons and you overactivate them or you stimulate them beyond what they can handle, like, for instance, telling that marathon runner to run 10 miles when they can only run two, you run the risk of damaging them to the point to where now you're getting the opposite effect of what you're trying to get. And that goes back to the metabolic component that I was talking about a second ago. When we're treating these patients that are fragile, we always make sure they have good nutrition so that their brain is healthy enough to tolerate what we do. We make sure they have the adequate levels of neurotransmitters so that they can handle stimulation. We do everything we can from the metabolic realm to make sure that their brain has the, the nutrients, the fuel, the transmitters, everything that it needs in order to deal with the stimulation so that we don't exceed that and then kill a population of neurons, you know, inadvertently by overstimulating them. And this is really something that every functional neurologist that's been doing it for a while has realized either A, the hard way, or B, because somebody's taught them and showed them. Uh, I've done both. I've learned the hard way, and I've had people teach me this. So we have to learn how to sort of feel our way through the treatment of any patient and be able to say, man, this person's fatigability is, is right here, and I can't exceed that. And once these clinical markers get better, I can then step their treatment up another notch. And the reason why this is so really incredibly awesome is because this outlines the individuality of every single person's injury in their treatment plan. And this is one of the things that makes it different than regular medicine because regular medicine is empirical, which means you do A, and if that doesn't work, then you do B, and if that doesn't work, you do C. 
in functional neurology, every single person, if you look at their fatigability ratios and where their lesion is, coupled with their other metabolic factors, there's no two people that look the same. So there is no such thing as an empirical treatment equation for a real functional neurological patient. So the functional neurologist has to become more than just knowledgeable. They have to become an artist. And that is the art of what we do. That's awesome. So, you know, we were talking a little bit about drugs uh, right before we were talking about benzos and stuff. And you mentioned ADD or ADHD drugs. Do you know a gentleman named Dr. Amen? You familiar with him? Mm-hmm. His work? Yep. Very familiar. Yeah. Awesome. So just curious, I mean... I can't remember which book it was that that he wrote, but in one of his books, he says he asserts that it would be criminal to not medicate certain types of ADD. And and he differentiates into seven different types currently of ADD. So not all ADD is the same. And and he certainly thinks that uh, not all ADD should be medicated. Some of it is inflammatory in nature. and, And there's a lot of different things to look at. So, and I'm not trying to. I don't want people, you know, listeners to go out and diagnose themselves and and those types of things. And I'm just curious what your take is on it, because you mentioned some of these, you know, psychiatric drugs permanently altering who you are and stuff. What about some of these things like Ritalin or Adderall that are like, you know, they're changing what what our brain is doing with catecholamines and... uh, just curious, like, would you put those in the same kind of category as, as benzos as uh, watch out? Yeah, well, I tell you what's happened with all of these medications that are used for ADD and is, is that doctors sort of carte blanche throw you know, patients on there without really knowing a whole lot about the nervous system. I've seen a lot of family doctors not even do a neurological examination and then just put a patient on a benzo or, you know, some sort of you know, medication that's used for ADD, uh, like, a, you know, a methylphenidate or Ritalin or Vyvanse or something like that. And so I will agree with Dr. Amen on one sense and say that, yes, it is criminal to not give some of these kids the right or the, the ability to use these medications because some kids truly have a chemical imbalance that's so bad that these medications will make a big difference in them. But on the other hand, I would say it's just as criminal to, to not allow someone to have a therapist that can truly do a functional neurological evaluation and allow that to be synergistically part of their treatment. I mean, it goes both ways. That's why I say that there's really no such thing as one being terrible and the other being perfect. There's a time and a place for either of them, and sometimes they go together. But a lot of times somebody's medicated and they never even get the option for functional neurology whenever that really could solve a lot of the issues without having to take a medication that is so controlled it's a a category two drug, which means that every time one of those prescriptions is written, it goes straight to the drug enforcement agency and they monitor those things. So, you know, they take it seriously. The government takes it seriously. And yes, it might be criminal to not offer that type of treatment, but at the same time, There may be a treatment out there where there needs to be no chemical intervention and the brain can be changed very easily just by a few simple dietary things or a few simple nutritional things or a few simple neurological exercises. And once those are utilized, the patient's better. So I don't know what's more criminal. The fact that some groups say that all drugs are evil when they're not or the fact that people that dispense drugs say there's no such thing as changing the brain. Really, they both kind of come from a point of ignorance. And they both come from a point of cognitive dissonance, meaning some practitioners think that, you know, everything can fit into their tool shed, so to speak. This is one of the reasons why I went and got two degrees is because I wanted, I didn't want to be the person that tried to make everything fit into their tool shed. So Eamon has a good point, but I would make it not an exclusionary point. And I would say that there's, there's another side to that story. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. This is just sort of like a popular topic right now, and I don't know if you have a a take on it or not, but I'm just going to ask. Marijuana is being legalized in, you know, several states, just recreationally even, not to mention medicinally. I've had patients come in and say that they're, I had one lady say that she was giving her like two, I can't remember if if he was two or three year old son weed for, for epilepsy, for seizures that he was having. I'm just curious, do you have a take on medicinal 
and or recreational use of weed slash marijuana? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I've got a, a take on that. I mean, the first thing I have to say is, uh, from a medical standpoint, it's illegal in Texas. So I, I can't advocate its usage for anything. Outside of that, I'll make a couple of statements that I think are pretty safe. And that is, there's a lot of drugs out there that are worse than marijuana, and they're prescribed every day all across America. As far as the addictive component, there's a lot of opioids or opiates that are way worse. Uh, as far as the amount of damage that can happen, I mean, we can sit here and debate, you know, what ibuprofen does to your stomach and intestinal lining. So I, I would say that the debate really is kind of over whether or not there's, you know, marijuana is dangerous. It's not that addictive. Some argue if it's addictive at all. And there's medicinal components to it that there's no debate anymore that are helpful. But then again, it's just like any other drug where if you overuse it, it all of a sudden sort of crosses this line and becomes harmful. And it lowers productivity and it, it does things to an individual that slows them down. So there's kind of bad to it. I think that there is some good, there's some good things to making marijuana controlled by healthcare providers. The only problem is it's kind of turned into a joke in certain states. I mean, you walk in and you just say what you have, and it's, it's really not a physical exam or any, you know, true physiological thought process that goes through whether or not you need the medication or the drug. And, and I think that's kind of a, a shame. It's, it's something that can be used clinically, but now it's kind of an excuse to get it to use recreationally all in the name of a condition that really isn't there so they've kind of made a mockery out of it. The science is still evolving. What we're going to be able to do in the future, who knows? I know the CBDs or the cannabinoids in it are very good procedures, according to some literature. Uh, and those can be extracted out away from the THC so that you don't have a high associated with it. And the other thing is that we're finding that uh, some of the uh, components in marijuana is very good for autoimmune. And we do a lot of work with autoimmune disease. So it would be interesting if we could utilize if not just marijuana, but maybe just a portion of it, like the cannabinoids. Uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, interesting topic. It'll continue to develop. I just hope that they don't make it a joke to where anybody that wants it can go get it and just say they have a problem when they really don't. I think that's my biggest issue with it. Got it. All right, sir. Well, I really have appreciated this. We're actually getting towards the end of our time. And I just want to see, is there anything that you've been up to that you want to share with people? Well, I've been working at Carrick Brain Centers and, uh, you know, we, we've been doing a lot to uh, take patients, uh, help other doctors, deal with cases that maybe certain people don't want to work with or deal with. So clinically, it's been really good. I have my own family practice in Dallas also where I do just kind of standard family practice stuff. It's not completely neurological. It's more on the functional medicine component or just the regular family medicine component. So I do both. Uh, I will be part of a uh, functional medicine certification program coming up pretty soon. I'll also be part of a functional neurology certification program that will be coming up soon. And both of those programs will sort of be evolved where they'll kind of involve each other a little bit. So the neurological part will involve some of the, the metabolic stuff that I've talked about. And the metabolic stuff from the functional medicine you know, program will contain some neurology in it. I will be starting my website, drbrocklectures.com. will be coming out pretty soon. That's basically something where I'll take a, you know, a portion of the money and I will uh, contribute it to that. Recently, our clinic in Dallas, Care Brain Centers, we've published two very good papers on what we've been doing with PTSD research and vets. So I really want to be able to start a project where I can take at least half of the money and contribute it to the vet population so that they have money because their their resources are being stripped away, you know, by the day by the government. So the website will help contribute some money to a charitable cause and we'll have some really good functional medicine certification programs and neurological programs starting pretty soon. And then I'm going back to Duke University to get a doctorate degree as a nurse practitioner. So I've got a master's degree in it now. So I'll start that in the fall. And I think that all should keep me pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So there's sort of two different sort of levels, I guess, about this question. But I'm curious if, if people want to learn more about you or see if, if you can offer them any help, where would they find you or how would they get started with that? You know, I can include anything that you want in, in the show notes yeah. at drchrisfrickman.com, but you can also feel free to say it here. 
but so what I mean by two different levels is a there's for for patients like if if there's someone like hey boy I, I really feel like I need some help with functional neurology sounds like Dr. Brock knows what's going on um, I want to talk to him or for practitioners whether they're you know medical doctors or or nurse practitioners or chiropractors if they want help where can they learn about these certification programs that you're doing and are you currently taking referrals from from docs yes well it's kind of a complicated process but it's really not that complicated i mean you can google me and find me all over the place i'm at carrick brain centers if you want to know what's going on with me per se as far as like what we're going to be up to on facebook Dr. Brandon Brock is my public figure page where I pretty much announce everything. So I'll be putting things up there as they kind of unfold. Like I said, in the, in the, in the, in the fall is where most of our, all of our programs are going to be starting. So it'll be really exciting. I mean, we're looking forward to all the things that we're going to be doing. And, and I would also say that I do work for Apex, which is you know my favorite nutrition company. And I really think they have a, a good finger sort of on the pulse of, of what functional neurology and functional medicine means. Their educational courses are really the best. Uh, they're, they're really good. They include just some great material. And I work with Dr. Karazi. And yeah, I'm fortunate I get to work with a lot of great people. But Carrick Brain Center, is, you, know, you can find it online. It's a great place to try to refer. Or you can go on to, uh, like I said, Facebook. And you can find me and look and see pretty much everywhere I work. So it's not too difficult to find me. Okay. Awesome, man. Well, uh, any, any closing thoughts? No, I just... It's good to be really part of healthcare at the level that uh, I think that we're at. We're offering answers that uh, other doctors aren't. It's really great to get to see a patient, you know, improve whenever nobody else really helped them. It's also very humbling because you don't, you know, always fix everybody and, and you're learning something every day. But I will say this, that every one of our patients, again, they're not empirical. They're, they involve thought. And that's why I love it so much because the day doesn't become stagnant. And there's not enough of us. So it's a great thing to study because there's there's so much room for for great, great cross-trained practitioners that understand the functional world of medicine, nutrition, neurology, and all that. You know, so if there's people out there that are interested in, or that are healthcare providers, man, you should learn because it will change your life and change your practice. And then if you're a patient out there that doesn't have a good functional practitioner, go find one. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Dr. Brock, I love what I do. I'm so blessed. I have, I have a great life. And, and part of that is just meeting so many gifted individuals and you are one of them. So I really appreciate you and, and your time that you took with us today. Thank you so much for those of you listening. I will definitely have show notes available at drchrisfrickman.com slash Brandon Brock. Let's do that. So if you want to check that out, uh, you can go there. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you. I appreciate it. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more. 